This is a recording being made in the chapel of the open book and it is under the covering title of Shadows Cast Before. Uh, but this time we are moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament and our study will revolve very much round one whose ministry belongs to our calling, namely Paul the Apostle to the Gentile. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening, if you care to join with us, will you turn to the 22nd chapter of the Acts of the Apostles and read that chapter through. Well, in this series, we have already considered Adam as a shadow of him that was to come. We've looked at the two brothers, Cain and Abel, and are confronted with two seeds, and the departing between them is evidently their attitude to the finished work of Christ, the two offerings. We've seen the great principle of substitution in Seth instead of Abel, whom Cain slew, and we've looked at Enoch and considered his twofold prophecy concerning the coming of the Lord and the naming of his son. Well now, the next one on the program would be Noah and a demonstration that he, in type, represents the second Adam, starting all over again. Uh, but we have to practice economy and we are making tape recordings and as Noah, the second Adam, formed a part of the study which is included in the big series called the Pre-Roma, those of you who would like to pursue that with other Old Testament characters, you'll find that it's already there. It doesn't mean to say that we could never take the subject again or that it has been exhausted, but it seems as though we must just move from the Old Testament in this particular series, leaving what has been said to be blessed of the Lord, if he will, and come to the New Testament. Well, I propose giving a consideration to that earthen vessel who himself said, Who then is Paul? And he very pointedly answered it. He said, Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. He tells you that he was an earthen vessel, an earthen vessel, but a very chosen vessel. But what I want to do this evening is to look not so much at his spiritual characteristics because we are distinctly told in the epistle to the Galatians that he was separated from his mother's womb. That is to say, long before Paul manifested any evidence of being a good speaker or a good leader or a student of scripture or anything, he was already chosen by God for this ministry. He grew up not knowing it. He grew up in his surroundings, and he was influenced by his surroundings. But it's a comfort, I think, to see that all those surroundings were known of God and could be used of him. Now, there's nothing that can take the place of Scripture. We don't preach our experiences except to supplement them. But I think we must sometimes watch our step that we don't think that God has no use for what we might call the mere accidentals of life. He has. Some of you, I know, raise your eyebrows either physically or mentally if I happen to slip a quotation from Shakespeare in. Well, I must admit, I've got no room for Shakespeare as a spiritual leader. 
Uh, but I do very much appreciate that man's ability to what, put what he wanted to say in trenchant words. And on one occasion, I met somebody who I didn't, I'd never met before. He had no interest in what I believed, but every quotation from Shakespeare I, I, he gave, I finished it. But ultimately, he sat back and let me tell him about somebody else who was even more important to me than Shakespeare. You see? On another occasion, I'd been speaking while I was away on holiday in Austria to somebody about the Word of God. And then I came in with a watercolour sketch, all fresh. I had to carry it because it was wet. And as I passed his table, I heard him say to his wife, but he believes the Bible as well. You see? So, if you don't put them in the wrong place, you can begin to say, well, God knew all about that. He knew all about the temperament of the Apostle Paul. He knew mine as well. And they can be laid at the feet of the Lord and be used as instruments so long as we keep them in their right distinctive place. So I want to look at this man, not so much from the fact that he was a believer in Christ and a wonderful believer, but that he was a man, as he says, of like infirmity to ourselves, and he was born at a certain place, and it had an influence over him. He was taught in a certain school, and it had an influence over him. And then we began to see how truly he, this man could say, he said, I have made all things to all men, that by all means I may save some. To the Jew, I become as a Jew, as one under the law. To the Gentile, I become as one without the law, but not without the law to Christ. So let's, shall we gain a little experience that may help us, as we consider not so much the treasure, but the earthen vessel that God chose to contain that treasure. I'm going to read, first of all, an extract from Connie Berenhausen. Now, Connie Berenhausen isn't a Greek word. It's the name of two people who were writers, uh, Connie Berenhausen, who wrote a very fine um, commentary on the Acts of the Apostles. Very fine, I say. Don't get it out from the library and then pin me down and say they didn't see dispensational truth. That's one of the things that we have to remember with all standard works. The, you see, unfortunately, Connie Berenhausen wrote the Acts of the Apostles possibly before I was born, so they didn't have a chance to ask me anything about it. But they are credited with using one of the longest sentences in ordinary literature. Now, don't get alarmed. It'll only take me a few minutes. Here's, the, here's this extraordinary sentence that contains so much in it uh, that you might like to read it again. And if you can't get Connie Berenhausen, you can turn to the Berean Expositor, volume 31, page 109, and I've quoted it there. So here it is. Here we see that fearless independence with which he withstood Peter to the face. That impetuosity which breaks out in his apostrophe to the foolish Galatians. That earnest indignation which bids his converts beware of dogs Beware of the concision, and pours itself forth in the emphatic, God forbid, which meets every antinomian suggestion, and that fervid patriotism which makes him wish that he himself accursed from Christ for his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. That generosity which look for no other reward than to preach the glad tidings of Christ without charge, and made him feel that he would rather die than that any man should make his glorying void. That dread of officious interference, 
which led him to shrink from building on another man's foundation. That delicacy which shows itself in his appeal to Philemon, whom he might have commanded, yet for love's sake, rather beseeching him, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And which is even more striking in some of his farewell greetings, as for instance, when he bids the Romans salute Rufus and his mother, who is also mine. And that scrupulous fear of evil appearance, which would not eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labour and travail night and day, that it might not be chargeable to any of them. And that refined courtesy, which cannot bring itself to blame, till it is first praised, and which makes him deem deem it needful almost to apologise for the freedom of giving advice to those who were not personally known to him. That self-denying love, which will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest he make his brother to offend and that impatience of exclusive formalism with which he overwhelms the Judaizers of Galatia, joined with a forbearance so gentle for the innocent weakness of scrupulous consciences, that grief for the sins of others, which moved into tears when he spoke of the enemies of the cross of Christ, of whom I tell you even weeping, and that noble freedom from jealousy with which he speaks of those who out of rivalry to himself preach Christ even of envy and strife supposing to add affliction to his bonds. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. That tender friendship which watches over the health of Timothy, even with a mother's care, that intense sympathy in the joys and sorrows of his converts, which could say even to the rebellious Corinthians, ye are in our hearts to die and live with you that longing desire for the intercourse of affection, and that sense of loneliness when it was withheld, which perhaps is the most touching feature of all, because it approaches most nearly to a weakness. When I had come to Troas to preach the glad tidings of Christ, and a door was opened to me in the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother. But I parted from them, and came from thence to Macedonia. And when I was coming to Macedonia, My flesh had no rest, but I was troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. But God who comforts them that are cast down, comforted me by the coming of Titus. Do thy utmost to come to me speedily, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed to Thessalonica. Crescens, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. He's a mixture, isn't he? And so are we all. But what a wonderful mixture, isn't it? All those different facets. And they could all reflect some of the glory of his son. Well, I felt that that would be worth a minute or two. Get that synopsis, that sketch, that self-drawn portrait from his own words of this man that was chosen as an apostle of the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, he asked that question which we've already put. Who then is Paul? So he knew it was about, he knew the question was about. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers, by whom he believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. He gave to every man with all the ability that Paul had, 
it would never have made him an apostle. And he had abilities, you will gather as we go on. But the Lord gave. So then neither, he says, I have planted. That was his work. Upon us watered. That was his work. But God gave the increase. I don't know whether you ever do any gardening. I do it theoretically. I find that's less backache than... But if you do any gardening, well, one has to do this bit, and one has to do the other bit. And then you have to sit back, if you've ever got a gardener, and say, and it's God alone that can give the increase. That miracle belongs to him. What is it? We are just workers together belonging to God. He speaks about himself in 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, by that figure that we've quoted. You might as well see it. Verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. I happened to say this afternoon something, I don't know what led up to it, in connection with our subject. I said, if you object to the vessel that God has chosen, you may have to go without I said, if anybody in this meeting this afternoon objects to have their tea, except out of Royal Crown Derby, you won't get any. So there's the cups on the sideboard, and they're all blank white ones. Don't you see? It isn't the vessel that, that, that's the thing to think about. It's what's in it that matters. This man, this man apostle, he quoted from the Corinthians. They said, you ought to see his face. They didn't say it like that. They said, his bodily presence is mean. And when he appeared in Athens... They called him a seed picker, a sparrow, a babbler. So you see, it isn't the, it isn't the shape or the pattern of the vessel that God chose. He stoops down to use those things which are not to confound those which are. So we have this man. But on the other hand, even though we say that, even though he said, I am not worthy to be called an apostle, and I'm less than the beast of all saints, you look out if you say, oh, he, he doesn't care. If you touch the ministry, you might let off a bomb by the way he'd go for you. He said, I magnify mine office. Oh, yes. I'm not one good behind the chiefest of the apostles, though I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. He made a great difference between himself, Mr. Paul, and himself, the apostle of Jesus Christ. So that was an honour. That was a responsibility. That was something he could lay down to the feet of nobody except the master who gave it to him. And then you discover just another feature. I'm passing over these rather rapidly. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says that his conversion, the mode of his conversion, is a pattern. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. And he prefaces it by a, a statement which occurs several times in these pastoral epistles. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now you can take that as it stands, and you can expatiate on it and try to prove that he was the biggest villain out. And yet, you'd have to make that side with the statement that he himself is permitted to write, that touching the righteousness of the law, he was blameless. Well, I believe a man who could honestly write after his conversion that touching the righteous requirement of the law, he was blameless, he could not be branded as being a villain. So you say, when he says he was a chief of sinners, did he? This word chief 
occurs in the next verse. However, how be it? For this cause I obtain mercy that in me first. I believe what the Apostle Paul said, I am the first sinner to be converted by Christ Jesus. That title's significant. Up till then it's Jesus Christ. But Christ Jesus stresses the office and not the personal name, the earthly name. And Paul was converted not by a mission and not by a chapel or not by a church or not by a tract. He was converted by immediate contact with the risen living Son of God. And he said, Now be it for this cause I obtain mercy that in me as a first one Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now we've all come different ways. We can all look back at the moment of our conversion. Some of us, anyhow. But we begin to realise that this apostle has given us a hint that our conversion no longer depends upon an ecclesiastical minister or circumstances. It might be on the road to Damascus. It might be anywhere in the most unlikely circumstances that the Lord could meet and that the transaction be done. The spot that I was converted is now somewhere in the middle of the Strand Palace Hotel. If I went there, they'd want to turn me out because I wouldn't be dressed in the right uh, coat and tie. And I didn't know if I could find it because that was once Exeter Hall. But now it's the Strand Palace Hotel. But that's where the Lord met me. Well then this word pattern re- is uh, repeated in his second epistle. Chapter 1. Verse 13. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. That word form is identical with the word pattern. So twice. And twice only this word occurs. Once it was Paul's own conversion that was a pattern and secondly it was the sound words which he had been entrusted, committed as the word is in this chapter to pass on to others. So there we have Paul the pattern. But now I want to leave that as time flies so quickly and turn to things which are perhaps a little bit outside the just the exposition of epistles and the acts. A little bit of outside light upon this man whom the Lord has chosen. When we read Acts 22, if we'd have glimpsed up, as you might have done, into Acts 21, somebody turned round to this apostle and said, you speak Greek? He was surprised. He thought he got hold of a Hebrew uh, fanatic, and there were many of them in those days, they were looking out for them. He said, you speak Greek? And then when he gave him permission to speak, he spoke in Hebrew. And at the end of the chapter he said, I'm a Roman. So he would, he would be able to pronounce that. I, I'm afraid my pronunciation wouldn't be very Latin. Civis, Romanus, some. I suppose it would be Civis today. Or Caivis, I don't know. But this man did. So here in, the, in, the, in those few verses, here's a man, he speaks Greek, he speaks Hebrew, and he's a Roman. That's the sort of man that God chose. And he knew all that. God knew his circumstances. He knew where he was going to be born and how he brought up. And although he could do without those things, he could take the veriest idiot of us and use us. But that's not his way. Here he knew the very things that made 
Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, what he was. Saul of Tarsus. So we'll look at those things, shall we? Now the first thing that we remember is he claimed that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Philippians 3. Let's get, let's give you, give in his own language his, his um, <coughs> statement. This is a long while after he was converted. Here he is, dealing with those who were putting the law in the place of grace and boasting in it. He says in verse 4 of chapter 3, Philippians, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, then he gives a list of those things which meant so much to those that he was opposing. Circumcised the eighth day, and as a reason for emphasizing the eighth day, he said, I wasn't dragged in as a proselyte when I was grown up. I conformed to the teaching of the scripture the eighth day. Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and the Hebrew of the Hebrews. I go back in my ancestry to Hebrews. I'm not one who's come into an outsider and been adopted. No, no. As touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He says, I'll beat you all then. I more. That's the man. He says in the um, Acts of the Apostles that he lived a Pharisee. A Pharisee. You see on the top of this board I put the word Pharisee. Now that comes from a Hebrew word which means to separate. But by accident, it sounds very much like the Greek word, to separate. You can see the two words. Aphorismai is what the word you find in Romans 1, if you'd like to look. And in Galatians, which we need not turn to, I've already quoted, he said, he separated me. God did. Here he says, Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. And by the hints that I gather in these epistles of Paul, I'm perfectly certain he couldn't say the word separated in the Greek language without mentally saying to himself, yes, I was once Phariseed unto all the obligations of the law of Moses. And now, blessed be God, I'm Phariseed unto the gospel of the grace of God. For the word means the same, and sounds the same, although it doesn't come from the same root. He says, I'm a Pharisee now, in another sense. I'm a Pharisee separated unto the gospel of salvation by faith to the poor outcast Gentile. Well, that gives me a uh, call to stop and read another book. Uh, this is not going to be my practice in these meetings generally, but if other people have said something about these outside things better than I can, well then I'm so humble and so modest that I'll give them the preference. I'm reading from Dean Farrer's work and I don't say follow Dean Farrer in all his doctrine but even Dean Farrow had got some good points, friends, even Dean. Here he is. He says, we must bear in mind that the dark side of Phariseeism which is brought before us in the Gospels, the common and current Phariseeism, half hypocritical, half mechanical and wholly selfish, 
which justly incurred the blighting flash of Christ's denunciation, was not the only aspect which Phariseeism could wear. When we speak of Phariseeism, we mean obedience petrified into formalism, religion degraded into ritual, morals cankered by casuistry. We mean the triumph and perpetuity of all the worst and weakest elements in religious party spirit. They're words well chosen, friends. But there were Pharisees and Pharisees. The New Testament furnishes us with a favourable picture of the candour and wisdom of a Nicodemus and a Gamaliel. In the Talmud, among many other stately figures who walk in a peace and righteousness worthy of the race which prayed for Abraham, we see the lovable and noble characters of a Hill, of a Simeon, of a Kajar, of a Judah the Holy. It was when he thought of such as these that even long after his conversion, Paul could exclaim before the Sanhedrin with no sense of shame or contradiction, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. Well then, there's another uh, portion that I would like to read in connection with this, and that is, he says, he lived a Pharisee. The straightest sect of my religion, he said, I lived a Pharisee. And this is the other side, the other side of Phariseeism. We know well the kind of life which lies hid behind that expression. We know the minute and intense scrupulosity of Sabbath observance wasting itself. Those primary and derivative rules and prohibitions and inferences from rules and prohibitions and combinations of inferences from rules and prohibitions, they never got to the end of it with what they loaded the backs of the people with uh, obligations. And cases of casuistry and conscience arising out of the infinite possible variety of circumstances to which those combinations of inference might apply, which degraded the Sabbath from a delight holy of the Lord and honourable, partly to an anxious and pitiless burden, and partly into a network of contrivances hypocritically designed, as it were in the lowest spirit of heathenism, to cheat the deity with a mere semblance of accurate observation. See, they, they invented a rule that you must only travel so many yards, it's all specified, as a Sabbath day's journey. And then they invented other rules so that you needn't worry about it. That's what they went on. They said, if you started on your journey and you said, that tree, that trunk of that tree is where my Sabbath starts, well, you could walk all that way before you started your Sabbath. But if you merely said, when I get to that tree, or that was no good, you must say the trunk of the tree, see? And then it sort of, see this, and cross your fingers, and you've said the right word. And so they went on with all these things until at last they degraded it to the very last degree. Phariseeism. Well, I think that there's a possibility we may have to have a whole mean, an evening, friends, instead of a part of it, on some of the things that went to make up Paul the Pharisee. For the more we understand what he knew about it, the better we can appreciate the way he fitted into the scheme. Somebody recently, I know, went to a doctor and in speaking about the trouble, uh, was very agreeably 
surprised that the doctor said, is it something like this? And the one who visited the doctor said, oh yes it was. Well that gave a certain amount of feeling, oh he knows doesn't he? And you know, when the Apostle Paul was speaking to the Hebrew under the law, he could say to the Hebrew, and was it something like this? And he'd tell him all this thing that you suffer when you're under the law of Moses and can't obey it. And when he spoke to the Greeks, among the philosophers, having been born at Tarsus, which is a university city, and filled with students of philosophy, he said, and did it feel like this? And I said, this man knows. And then, when he spoke to the Roman world, the leaders, the kings, and the magistrates, he could say to them, and does it feel like this? And he said, they said, he knows. My, this is an earthen vessel, but isn't he fitted for his job, friends? You see? So let's look at the second phase then. You remember, if you'll turn to the Acts of the Apostles, we can read it for ourselves in the context. Acts 21. Verse 39. In verse 38 you can see why the man was surprised he could speak Greek. Because he says in verse 38, Art not thou that Egyptian? which before these days made us an uproar and led us out into the wilderness, 4,000 men that were murderers. That's the man he was after, and he thought, I've got him. And he says he can speak Greek. But Paul said, I am a man, which am a Jew, of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. That's what he said about the city in which he was born. So although his hopes were set on things above, and he had here no continuing city. Yet at the same time, I don't think I blame the man when he was talking to this other man. And don't forget, he says, Tarsus is no mean city. If we had one of those quizzes that I suppose sometimes you even have listened to, there's a possibility that some of the learned ones on it would slip up. And we said, can you tell me the name of the river on which Cleopatra floated on that barge which we read about in history and which comes in Antony and Cleopatra? And they'd all say, the Nile. Well, it wasn't. It was the river that went up to Tarsus. See, that, that was a city. And it was a known place. A noted place. And in chapter 22, verse 3, he says, I am verily a man, which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel. So he says, I know what it is to live in a heathen context. In that city, in that city was a statue to Sardanapalus. And around the base of that city that Saul of Tarsus could have read and must have read many a time were these words. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself, the rest is nothing. That's what they put in the city of Tarsus as their guide to life. You can see it, can't you, embedded in the 1 Corinthians 15? He said, that's where I was brought up and looked at that as a boy. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself. The rest is nothing. Well, then again, you do know that Cilicia is spelt with a K. And if you don't know it, well, there it is. There's no soft C. K. And in the writings of those days, they spoke about the three Ks that were Kakista. Now, Kakos 
means evil. Kakista means terrible. The three kinds, and they are Cappadocia, Cilicia, and Crete. Because we would say Cappadocia, Cilicia, and Crete. The three kinds that were outrageous. And says Paul, I came from one of them. So, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, touching the righteous requirements of the law, blameless, and he lived in one of the worst cities for morals that the Roman world knew of. Wasn't he fitted for his job, friends? Didn't God know where he was to be born and how he was to be born and how he should come into the world and with what circumstances? Then you'll find that he has acquaintance with Greek literature. He quotes in the epistle to Titus, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, if you'd like to just to verify it, to show that he quotes. <clears throat> chapter 1, I'm sorry, verse uh, 12, Titus 1. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil, belly, evil beasts, slow bellies, quoting something. Or again, when in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 33, he says, evil communications corrupt good manners. He's quoting a sort of copybook. This is from a comedy, a Greek comedy by Menander. He knew it. And when he said, um, we are his offspring. In him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting from a hymn that was addressed to, jo- to Jove, Cleanthes. Now, I don't mean to say he was a student of these things, but he knew them. They were floating about him all the time. And so, he was steeped in Hebrew law. He was steeped in the letter of the word, for he, as soon as he was converted, as soon as he was converted, he was able to prove that this is the very Christ from the scriptures. And here he is quoting Greek literature and living in that context. And then there comes the next. Um, his statement. We'll go back to the Acts of the Apostles again. The passage we read, chapter 22. For he is the greatest claim of all. Chapter 22, it says in verse 25, uh, they were going to scourge him. And as they bound him with thongs, and the word used here means that they bent him over. You think of it. Here's this messenger of God. He's stripped, and he's bent over and bound. And they're going to scourge him. Dreadful. He just asked a polite question. He said, uh, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? That was enough. Away went this man to the captain. He said, here, mind what you're doing. This man says he's a Roman. And all over the world, Roman citizenship was the highest honour that a man could have. You see, we forget. I could say, and could say with truth, that the apostle of the Gentiles was a Roman. And people would tell me I'm wrong. It was Paul. I said, well, Paul was a Roman. You say, but he was a Jew. But Jews could be Romans. Greeks could be Romans. Spanish people could be Britons could be Romans. It was a dignity given to them. Over there as by birth. As he turned to this man, the chief captain answered, with a great sum obtained I this freedom. You see? 
He's talking to this man. He's looking at him. He's nothing to look at. He says, oh, you, you, the price I paid for this freedom was tremendous. And then Paul, I can't help but think Paul had a little twinkle in his eye. He said, yeah, maybe so, but he says, I was freeborn. I didn't have to buy it. I was freeborn. I was a freeborn Roman. And here's a man then who could talk to Agrippa, who could stand before these judges, and they, they didn't know what to do with him. And then at last, when it looked as though they were never going to give him a just hearing, he said, I appeal unto Caesar. Well, that was the Roman privilege. A man who was a Roman could set aside all the magistrates on earth and say, I appeal to the chief magistrate of Rome, and they dare not stop him. And that was their argument. They said, well, if he hadn't appealed under Caesar, we should have had to have said, oh, well, he's free, let him go. But we're done. Well, that meant to say that now he must go to Rome. He didn't do it on purpose to get a free passage. But the Lord said to him, as you were born witness in Jerusalem for me, so you'll bear witness in Rome. But he never let her go and bother about finding timetables and getting tickets. and It was all done for him. He was taken there. Taken there as a prisoner, certainly. But he was taken there. And the man never called himself a prisoner of Jewish spite or the slip-up of Roman law. He said, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ. It's all right. Not that he enjoyed prison. But he was a servant of Jesus Christ. And if, if it meant prison, well, he says, that's all right. None of these things move me. The one thing I'm concerned about is to finish my course with joy. So there we have then you remember the indignities that he went through? It says, five times was I beaten. I was scourged three times with rods. It was illegal to scourge a Roman in a synagogue. And it was illegal to beat a Roman with rods. But he endured it. He was put in prison at Philippi. I never said a word about it at first. But when the earthquake had upset the people a bit more and wondered what it meant and they learned that they put Romans in prison with a scourge back, all oh, they sent down a deputation and said, oh now, we'll let you free. You got this. Says, you put us in here and you let us out. Oh, I'm glad he took that line a little bit. And they came down and they had to more or less apologise and be thankful that he didn't take an action against them. If you know the way in which it was spoken of by the leading Romans, how they said about this position to stand in the world, I am a Roman citizen, that's what the word means there. And then you come to realise, you come to realise the way in which that man suffered and what he endured and how he didn't stand upon his rights but was willing to sacrifice everything. And who was the one he sacrificed everything for? In the eyes of his fellow Romans, a Jewish peasant who would die the most degrading death that the Roman world could invent. And you know this, that no Roman could ever be crucified. When, when he wrote the words in Philippians, he said that he left that glory, he came down to death, but he didn't stop there, even the death of the cross. And that man ever seen to himself, he went lower than I could go. If the tradition is true, Paul was led out from Rome and beheaded as a Roman. It's very nice to be politely put to death, I suppose. 
but it had its meaning. His Saviour and his Lord was crucified, something that a Roman could never experience. Well, then I think we'll leave it for the time being. Let us thank God for this earthen vessel, not making us into Paulites, not worshipping the man, but realising that he indeed is a pattern. And he's, he's coming to you, those of you who are listening now at this moment in the chapel, and those of you who will be listening presently, I hope, in distant places. This word is coming to you. You were born in some particular vicinity. You were brought up under certain circumstances. Now, you won't have the threefold ability of the Apostle Paul to meet a Hebrew on equal terms, to meet the philosophers more or less on equal terms, and to meet the Romans. But you've got something. Will you not do what this man did when you realised that Christ was your Saviour and your Lord? The first prayer the man ever uttered was, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord took him on his own terms and he used him in the threefold capacity. He was a Hebrew to the Hebrews. He was a philosopher who was wondering about these things that hadn't found the truth. And he was a Roman to the Romans so that he could speak with authority in every way. And yet, he never abused his authority. He never, as it were, enforced his rights. He walked through this world as a pilgrim, although he had so many rights if he'd only have cared to enforce them. So I think there are lessons that we may learn. And I trust that although we've turned away from the Old Testament characters and haven't continued with Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, you won't feel you've missed anything this evening by having had your attention drawn to these things that belong to our calling and to our peace.